Welcome to episode 85 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This episode, we got to hang out with Tobias Perry jones I am a huge, huge fan of his type work, so uh, I was extremely excited and a little bit nervous to talk to him on this one. But the episode was a ton of fun. We got to pick his brain about typography, his work, and his new typeface, which actually just came out this past week. We hope you enjoy the show. Uh, definitely hit us up on Twitter with your thoughts. We're at Design Details FM or check out some of our other shows on the Spec Network. That's at spec.fm. We've got five shows all about design and development to help you level up. Before we get into this episode with Tobias, we wanted to thank our two sponsors that made this episode possible. Our first sponsor, back again, Wayno. Wayno is a world-class, amazing digital agency cranking out some of the best design work in the world for companies like Airbnb, Medium, Google, Reuters, and of course, Dropbox. They're extremely humble. They're amazing people to be around. They're super fun. They describe themselves as the all-dancing, all-singing, fast-growing, not-quite-bourgeois, not-quite-bohemian, full-service digital agency. And when you can be doing that high quality of super professional work and still have like a sense of humor about it, I uh, love it. We love their team. If you haven't heard of their company, but you've been on Dribble at any point ever, you've probably seen their work. So definitely check out their Dribble. Bueno's sponsoring the show because they enjoy listening. They want to support us and they want to reach you guys and let you know that they exist. They are an awesome agency. They're living at ueno.co, bueno.co. They have an office in San Francisco. Just a few months ago, they opened an office in New York and they are hiring. So if you want a job at one of the best agencies in the world, check out wayno.co. They have a careers link in the header and tell them that we sent you. We really appreciate them sponsoring the show. So be sure to check them out at wayno.co. Our second sponsor, as always, Dropbox. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way that you want. Whether you're sketching, coding, prototyping, whatever, Dropbox is with you throughout the entire design process. It works with any kind of file. And you'll do file previews for most of them too, which is incredible. So you're free to choose the tools you need for every project. When you're ready for feedback, you can send large files to anyone really fast with those file previews. You just send someone a link. You don't have to share a folder or anything like that. You can just share a single file at a time. They can actually comment in line. Their commenting feature gives people a central place to post their thoughts. Uh, That way conversations can happen right alongside the work itself instead of in things like email or Slack or whatever. It just keeps everything really organized. Really, Dropbox gives you the freedom to work on anything from anywhere with anyone you choose, and you can get started at dropbox.com. Thanks once again to Dropbox. And with that, let's get into episode 85 with Tobias Ferrer-Jones. Uh, hello, this is Tobias Ferrer-Jones. I'm a typeface designer from New York City. Perfect. What are you working on? Right now, um, I and and our designers here are working on our, on our first retail release, a family called Mallory. It'll be coming out uh, a couple of weeks from now. Uh, I read that one of, or this was on your blog, one of the hardest parts of type design is coming up with the name. Mm-hmm. So why Mallory? Uh, Mallory is one of my middle names. Okay. And this is actually one of the rare cases where it was actually kind of easy to find the name. The initial idea of of Mallory was, this, um, it began with a kind of a sort of thought experiment, kind of what if kind of conjecture. What if what would a typeface look like if it had the same the same background the same sort of heritage that I do because my mother's English and my father's American and I grew up in this uh, in this sort of hybrid environment um, you know living in Brooklyn and and going over to England to visit relatives there and took in both of these visual cultures and uh, recognized them as different even before I really understood quite what it was I was recognizing. So I wondered just, you know, as a, 
new, maybe successful, maybe not way of conceiving a new typeface, I thought I would take that as a recipe and, and see what happens. Yeah, so it began with my own family. So it seemed to make sense just to pick one of my names. So my, my last name is you know a bit much to use as the name of a typeface. <laughs> it's probably jealous. not going to happen. <laughs> uh, so using one of my middle names is probably as close as I'll get to that. Can you describe like what the... I don't know the thesis of the typeface is having those two cultures. Like, what were the the decisions that will make it reflect those cultures? Well, the idea was to, or the the hope was to make something that had the, uh, the sort of austerity and the kind of serious uh, sort of demeanor that we associate with a lot of British design, uh, and then on the other hand, the uh, sort of more energetic. Uh, plain spoken quality that a lot of American type design has had over, you know, uh, through so much of its history. So yeah, so those are the two sort of ingredients of personality that I was trying to fuse together. You've done a lot of work, we don't have to go through it, but kind of the, the start, when did you start getting into typography and becoming interested in designing typefaces? Well, I think I, I became interested in typography before <laughs> I actually... Thank realized you. that I was interested in interested in typography. Is that where you started in design? Just as an aside, were you immediately drawn to typography over other fields of design, or did you start as a more generalist designer? Uh, I, th- I think it went pretty much straight to straight to the letter forms. Okay, um, I, I went to to RISD and got a degree in graphic design, but I always understood it to be a foundation for the type design work that I wanted to go out and do later but traveling to to london i would just stand and stare at the signage in the london underground because there was something about these words that did not look like anything that i would see in new york and you know i would i would go into the library at at my school in brooklyn and just flip through old issues of national geographic and life just looking at the ads and the typography there uh, and as it changed through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, I wasn't quite sure what it was I was reacting to, but there was something in the design of these of, of these pages that was really potent. And I eventually figured out that it was the type that I was uh, that I was reacting to. There was a newsstand up the up the street from our house that sold newspapers in Russian and French and Greek and Italian and all these other languages. And I like picking up, you know, buying copies of these newspapers. Uh, I couldn't read a word of any of this stuff, but there's something about this pattern of forms and as it changes from one language to another that I just found was completely fascinating. So, um, yeah, somewhere in a storage in a storage locker, I have a stack of Russian newspapers from the mid '80s, you know, that were mysterious uh, uh, sort of object of focus for me. That I didn't quite understand what it was about this that that I found so so compelling. How did that lead you to actually designing your own, or even just starting to study it more uh, formally? So parallel to all of this, I was trying my hand at uh, at writing and at painting and photography and a bunch of other things. And there, there's a tradition of writers uh, and in publishing in the family and for a long time I thought I was going to go and be a writer like my great grandfather and my father and my brother and and um but I also really liked drawing and I and had a really hard time with the idea that I would have to give that up at some point I realized that drawing 
the letters and going to this obscure field of typeface design would be a kind of a kind of compromise between these two things of being a writer and being a painter they get to work with the language and the words but i still get to draw stuff i also get to step around the fact that i'm really bad at dealing with color <laughs> I'm, I'm just i'm just not very good at that so just use one <laughs> yeah and so there's just one um and i also I, i'm just terrible at drawing stuff in perspective interesting I, I just cannot pull that off i don't know why tobias flat designer <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it worked for me um, so trendy it clearly it has <laughs> uh yeah, yeah i get to it, it sort of neatly stepped around the things that i either wasn't interested in or just didn't feel comfortable with and focused on the things that i thought were just fantastic and there's this sort of games of proportion and rhythm and black and white and and so on yeah it, it seemed like this this sort of uh intersection that i never thought i would find between these two things that i wanted to do maybe this is super cliche do you see uh type design as more of a science or an art in terms of uh the math behind it and the creativity of actually coming up with something new uh well i, I think it's both and that's i think one of the best parts of it is that we have to move back and forth between uh being um, intuitive and being analytical and going back again and then going back again and i think that's that's really the only way to make this work you know to make something that is uh, this system of many, many tiny intricate parts that can work together in a consistent way, but also has a personality that you know, speaks to us in this very deep kind of pervasive level. And both of these kinds of brain work have to be happening at the same time. Do you have a, a way you would I identify yourself as a type designer, like a certain style or uh, genre? Or even when you just particularly love I, I try not to linger in any uh, in any particular style. Mm -hmm. um, I like you have a particularly wide variety of work to choose from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I th well, I think the things that are it's most interesting and satisfying at any given moment are the things that bear the smallest resemblance to whatever it was I just did. Cool. So like yeah, and it's, it's just more interesting that way. And I, you know, I like I like to be able to extract some kind of some kind of lesson from each one of these one of these projects and like if there's something that i haven't done before and have to go figure out education process it's my own responsibility and i have to keep it moving have you had that moment uh with mallory so far the lesson well i, th I think s starting from the sort of explicitly emotional place to work out a design i hadn't and quite done that before so i think that was you know at the very beginning but after sort of working with this this idea and figuring out what kind of shapes would convey this personality and, and combine these two different uh, um, traits, I realized that it had more uh, more practical potential to it as well. What I came out with was a mix of geometric structures and more sort of organic humanist structures, and it was it was a conscious decision to mix these two things together and to juxtapose them in a way that seems more more like a cooperation than some kind of dissonance or indecision. I realized it had the potential to combine well with other typefaces because there could be some aspect of this mix of things that I've just made that has some resonance to another typeface that would be you know, on the page or on the screen nearby. But once it started with this very emotional brief, it picked up a second one that was much more practical uh, and it was, it was at that point that 
I started thinking of it as uh, a candidate to be the, the first thing that we released because before that it was just this personal experiment mm-hmm. uh, and I prefer not to release a typeface unless I know that there's going to be some practical benefit to a user mm-hmm. um, they, they need to get something out of it do you view it as something that will be used more for editorial or interface design I think I saw a couple of glimpses but it looks like it's pretty um, content driven is that the case? Was that something you considered as you built it? Well, it's its appearance in running text was something I, I spent a lot of time thinking about. And it's easy for me to imagine it in an editorial setting or in publications because that's I've spent a lot of time in, in that kind of uh, environment. But I certainly hope that it moves beyond that into other kinds of design work, whether it's interfaces or packaging or uh, broadcast or, or, or whatever. That's always actually kind of a nice surprise in releasing something into the world that it was, it'll just about always go someplace that you weren't I, I didn't think of, <laughs> yeah. and someone will do something with it that I hadn't anticipated. Has there ever been a time that that was disappointing? Uh, I'm sure they get misused all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they they do. Um, you know, I, I learned early on that that's going to happen. I, I can't you know call these people up and ask them, you know, what are you doing with my typeface? Why are you doing this to me? But <laughs> I think yeah. There's, there's always a at some point. It might, it might be right at the start. It might be you know five or six years from now where I'll see some use in some kind of content in some kind of uh, context that I might not have thought that this would work, but somebody pulled it off, and and that that's that's a nice surprise. I would love to hear the timeline of up to when you decided to sell your first typeface and like treat it as as a business um, for yourself rather than maybe like doing it for a client or something like that way back at at, at the beginning at the or beginning or, or, yeah or, or well, this, whenever, whenever origin you, story when you sold your first typeface as a as a package that you released ah okay um, I was a student at RISD and I was doing I was doing an independent study project with one of my professors there to design a text face hadn't done this before and I, I needed some experience in this and uh, there wasn't a uh, a specific course that I could take so I just had to make one up for myself and just made this project with Christoph Lenk to design a serif text face in the Venetian um, genre and I didn't really know what I was doing but I did know that there was a lot that I didn't know and I was, this was my attempt to try to educate myself. After a semester I had a lowercase that really did not look very good and uh and a few caps that uh, couldn't really be used for anything and i was, I was pretty worn out and actually a little bit discouraged about how difficult this had been at the end of the semester i was at the uh, bar near the you know the graphic design studios and uh there in providence and i started just doodling stuff on the back of a bar napkin so something that would be the exact opposite of this very sober practical thing that i had been, just spent several months with it was this deliberately goofy looking thing and i realized that uh, a little while earlier my brother sasha had this band called dolores had remarked that while he's uh, putting up flyers for his band uh, for the shows that, that his band was doing he couldn't find a font that quite fit the personality of their music and it seemed like you know what i was doodling out on this napkin was you know it was kind of near that uh it was christmas was coming up and i was broke and i thought this would actually be a nice present to give my brother was to give them the typeface that he couldn't find 
So I took this, these uh, bar napkin drawings back to uh, the studios at RISD and digitized this as a typeface. It was called Dolores after the band. And a few months later, I was on a travel course uh, with, with one of my um, courses at RISD going through the, uh, through the Netherlands, visiting studios and academies there. And I took a side trip to Berlin to meet with Eric Speakerman at Font Shop. And I wanted to show him these two projects that I was working on. Well, actually, I just want, I, I want to show him the, the, the really serious thing that I spent months on. Uh, I just happened to have the other one with me. And I showed this to him and he said, I, I can't remember quite what he said, um, but I think he was diplomatic in saying that this was not quite, <laughs> not quite ready. Uh, so I was sort of shrugged and said, okay, and sort of reluctantly showed him this other thing, being not quite certain that I should do this. And he thought it was great. And he said, you, 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 can we publish this? Wow, that's awesome. Can we do this? You know, hang on a second. And he went to the other room and he came back with a contract. And On the spot. Yeah, and I wasn't <laughs> quite sure what what was happening because this was <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> exactly, not the way I thought this was going to go. Because this is not supposed to be this goofy thing I drew on a bar napkin. That's not how my career is supposed to start. But okay, I'll take it. Sure. So I went back to Providence and uh, and finished out the characters have because what I gave Sasha was I think just a lowercase and not much else. So I finished it out as a more complete product to you know to their standards their character set and that became the first uh the first design that i published it was called dolores um ironically the band broke up right after the typeface was released <laughs> That's so funny. so there was there was only i think maybe a month or something like that where the two <laughs> things actually existed at the same time that's hilarious and where did you go from there uh from from there i i still had a year to go at RISD, you know, started cooking up ideas of my own uh, for other projects that I wanted to do. Did that sort of like light the fire a little bit to actually publish your first one? Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> it seemed like you know, I, I could actually do this instead of being some distant thing that I was hoping to aim for and not quite sure in what direction. And at one point in that, in that year, Matthew Carter came down uh, from Cambridge to speak uh, to speak to the graphic design department and I managed to pull him aside uh, after this after his talk and show him the things that I was looking at uh, that I was working on and after looking at it he said you know what you ought to talk to a colleague of mine David Burlow up in Boston he's got this started up this place called Font Bureau you two ought to meet and have a chat so you know, with that introduction I went and met with uh, with David showed him these designs that I was working on. It was just one thing that had been published and these different sort of alpha stage sketches of ideas. And I showed him this one idea of these tickets from parking garages that I'd been collecting out of the, off the street here in Brooklyn. There used to be much, much more trash in the streets here in New York back in the 80s. You could find some really great stuff if, if you just kept, <laughs> if you kept your eyes on the ground. Trash collector. Oh yeah, and and <laughs> that 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 storage space up the street has a box full of stuff yeah. that have that have uh, that have found around town, and these tickets from parking garages were one of them. And I originally picked them up to use in, in collages and paintings that I was doing, and they had this particular style of numbers on them that didn't really appear anywhere else. And I thought I had this 
idea of maybe creating something that was based on this that kind of backformed a whole alphabet from these numbers. And he said, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. Why don't you go do that? Go, okay. Um, didn't think that's how that worked, but okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll go do that. I'll go try that. Um, and, you know, again, there was a lot of struggle both to figure out, you know, how to go about this and also work with these shapes that are turned out to be much stranger and sort of wobbly things that I first realized them to be. But that became Garage Gothic. That was the second face that I published. That was the first one with Font Bureau. Were there any others that were particularly personal for you? You mentioned Mallory's distinctly personal. Dolores, your first one was also very personally oriented. Like, were there any that were like a close personal connection as you're developing them? You know, they're all passionately felt. You know, there's an investment in each one of them. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't have gone out the door. Um, you know, there are plenty of things that I've started, realized that they didn't quite work the way I thought they would, or, or the enthusiasm for it faded, and, you know, I held those back, um, you know, hopefully to be improved at some point in the future. My final project at RISD was a series of experiments in um, in form recognition and the basis of legibility and role of history and technology and so on. And it became a series of experimental typefaces that were meant to uh, push or bend the process of, of reading or deliberately break it in some cases just to see exactly where the pieces fall. And the results from those experiments came back years later uh, in a design called Retina that that I did as a commission for for the Wall Street Journal for their uh, for their stock listings uh, that that'll be coming out uh, later in, in 2016. But I feel particularly strongly about that one because it was built of you know very directly on on experiments that I did uh, and observations that I made over decades of of being in this field. So Brent and I are both product designers, mm-hmm. and we chat a lot with people that are building software and user interfaces and one topic that comes up over and over again is process Mm -hmm. what's the process um so i don't know too much about type design i'd love to hear like what over the years as you've gotten better and learned more like what your process is from um this idea in your head of of a typeface to completing it like what's that look like for you uh i think of a typeface of design is being less about the specific letters. Uh, it doesn't begin with thinking that the you know the bowl on the lowercase g ought to look like this, or the tail on the q ought to do this and something else. It's more about the theme that runs through all of these shapes and the kind of strategy that helps them work with one another. So it's that more sort of abstract. Uh, level that I began thinking on. I think secondly, for a typeface designer, the alphabet is not a linear sequence that begins with A and ends with Z. It's a bunch of almost like little tribes of like-minded things. They're the square things, the capital H and the E and the F and the T, the round things like the O and the C and and the Q. And the diagonal things like the A and the V and the X and so on. And much of the of the design is of the design process is in 
negotiating some kind of cooperation between these three camps. And the the first three letters uh, that we often draw are the capital H as a representative from the camp of square things, the capital O as obviously something round, and then the capital D as something that's a kind of hybrid form. And just in those three letters, there are all kinds of decisions to make about how heavy things are, how much contrast they have, and the difference between heavy and light within a single shape, how wide they are, if there are serifs in there, you know, what kind of shape and length and, that they have, um, and, almost, and also how much space is allotted to each side of these, uh, of these shapes, because that's a really critical part of making a typeface work is not just drawing the shapes, but drawing and designing the space in between the shapes and also inside them. So it's not uncommon to spend you know, a whole day or several days on just these first three letters uh, and, to, and to come back to these first three letters and try something differently and see what the implications are. That would often be followed by a kind of corresponding trio of letters in the lowercase being the lowercase n, o, and p. The same idea of something square, something round, something mixed. And... After those three get coordinated with each other, it's then time to get the caps to work in some consistent way with the lowercase. And this is a really hard step to, to get the caps and lowercase to work with each other. But, well, I mean, this is all of these steps are critical, but this one, I think, especially. And then from there, I build out the character sets on the lines of these uh, initial camps of square and round and diagonal. As I like to think of them as kind of the kind of the primary colors of, of typeface design or square and round and diagonal. Um, there's a, uh, what's called a test word, which is a set of, I can't remember if it's 15 or 16 letters. Hamburgstiv? Yeah, ham- something uh, or- yeah, there are a couple of variations on it. The one that I use is Hamburg offensive. And I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. And it's, it's the same for the caps in the lowercase. And it contains some representative of every shape that you're going to run into you know, over the course of, of this design uh, so that if you can figure out how to draw the letters in this word, you've cracked all of the major puzzles that you're going to find. It also has the benefit of covering the most common letters through, certainly through English and a number of other languages as well, so that you can get to setting actual text as, as soon as possible. And, and I think that's a really important part of evaluating the performance of a typeface. You know, we can look at these abstracted examples of a letter in between H's and in between O's and you know, get some, some information about how, how well this is working or not working. But that's not really reading because those aren't words. And being able to engage our experience as readers uh, is, is a really important sort of tool for evaluating how well a typeface is working. At that point, are you sketching, uh, like hand drawing stuff, or how much of that is actually digital coming up with the kind of closer to the actual thing that you're going to be shipping? Uh, I try to get on screen as soon as possible because the uh, so much of the uh, so much of the strategy and so much of the success of the design is in how successfully these shapes can combine with one another and. If they're digital, I can you know, rearrange these shapes in any um, in any order. Look at them at twenty-four point or six point or one hundred and twenty point, and obviously that's 
way harder to do if I'm just <laughs> hold the piece of paper Redraw further over away. and over. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, just make lots of little drawings and on post-it notes and rearrange them and, or something. But yeah, it's it's just a lot easier to see how it'll add up. Right. So you're in tweaking Bezier's every day then. Yeah. Nice. That's that's something that doesn't seem to cooperate with the more senior designers. They tend to move out of that towards the more art direction position, but you are in there designing all the time. Uh, yeah, as, as much as I possibly can. It's in my happiest days, you know, when I can sit and just draw stuff and, you know, see what happens if the E is a little bit wider uh, or if its distribution of weight goes from, you know, to the, from being on the side to being slightly down towards the corner or the leg of the of the R is a bit heavier or gets gets uh, sharper or whatever. Um, yeah, that that stuff is still just fantastic. Yeah, uh, a fantastic way to spend a day. Do you ever find yourself drawn to trying to design things that aren't type necessarily? Uh, um, or is it a monogamous relationship with <laughs> type specifically? Do you ever like try feel yourself drawn to design an interface or? Um, something web-based other than letters? Oh, um, a kind of visual design. Um, I, th- I think that's that's the part where I'm more in a kind of art director uh, okay. uh, mode. You know, not necessarily my hands directly on you know, the design of this website or, uh, or this interface. Um, the same also goes with writing the tools that we use here. I mean, that's something that's part of a lot of type designers' uh, uh, process is uh, creating their own tools to fit their own workflow and their own needs what do you mean like I've what never heard of tools? that? that's amazing uh yeah well the environment where most of our work uh happens is something called robofont and mm-hmm. you know, it can make use of and can post uh code written by you know, by the designer or by anyone um in the, in the python language to to perform whatever sort of task that the designer needs doing um, or it needs to be done. And, you know, I write a little bit of Python myself. I'm, I'm much better at reading stuff that other people have written. Uh, but both, both Graham and Tim here and, and other colleagues that have worked with, uh, write Python and I'll come up with an idea of for a tool that could speed up or automate some aspect of this very intricate process and work with them to figure out how to best uh, how to best engineer this what's an example i like follow the logic but like what's the what are some of the end results say in uh in retina there are a range of weights and any given letter has the same width from its lightest variation to its heaviest variation uh so it's not it's not monospaced you know the a and the b and the c all have different widths from each other but from the lightest to the heaviest the width is exactly the same so that you can change the color of something and not have any of the copy fit move or any of the line breaks shift uh, most typefaces don't work that way but you know the what the wall street journal needed was a typeface that had this very particular behavior um, it meant making sure that all of the widths of the light that i had drawn matched all of the widths in the bold that i had drawn and i could make this comparison and all the information was there, and I can make this comparison manually, but that took a long time, was prone to error. But it's the sort of thing that some piece of code could do really easily. Just sort of look at this number, compare it to this other one. Does it match? Yes, no. Okay, move on to the next one. That, that was a 
you know, a very simple example of, of the sort of tool you know that, that we create uh, here in the office. And there's also a community of of designers that that make tools and share them uh, amongst each other. Yeah, on a practical level, like for people listening that are interested in this, what are some of the tools that a type designer like yourself has to use every day that they could start learning? Wait, I mean for for the, the for the basic kind of drawing environment, or or to yeah, like I I don't even know where I would begin if I wanted. What, to what learn. advice would you give to someone who wanted to get into it? Would it be around tooling or process things like that? Uh, I think to learn about the the process, I think you know as 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 you've uh, found you know having having a a community and and people to talk to and and you know, get feedback from is really critical, especially when you're starting out. And this is far easier to deal with now than it has been in the past because just about every designer that I know has some story of toiling and stumbling in isolation you know, without any specific instruction. I had my own particular mm-hmm. version of that and, and so did so many other designers. But now these young designers can go online and join forums like, uh, like type drawers where there are actual practicing professional type designers discussing topics and offering critique and uh, and so on so i think that's that's one of the first uh things i would suggest is seeking out these forums and sit there and just listen to the conversations going by and you know, and ask the questions that you have now you teach a course at yale yes right what kind of things are you teaching and and how much of your time do you devote to that uh helping other people learn uh well that's uh, it's one day a week every fall it's in the in the graduate program in the, in the school of art there in the, in the graphic design program and, and what I teach is actually exactly what what I do here yeah uh, I, I, did, I don't do a um, simplified uh, version of it I mean re- really the only way it's constrained is the fact that it's a semester long so the projects are calibrated to that span of time but uh, but the the process is uh, that I use there are exactly the same ones that I use here. Matthew Carter teaches there as well, correct? Yes, he does. And is that with you or is that separately? Uh, it's mostly separate, but it's you know, um, he teaches a, a workshop in the spring that is effectively a, a kind of an epilogue or sort of continuation of what I do in the fall. Okay. Um, and you know, he'll often come to the final, the final create in my class and I'll make some appearance during his workshop. So... Yeah, I suppose on paper they're separate things, but in practice they're related to each other. But why did you start? Like, was it because you just enjoy teaching? Was it about giving back? Was it uh, something deeper inside? I think I just it's like the the idea of helping people understand this and understand what it's made of. My father was it was a writer in uh, advertising agencies, and he placed a lot of value on being able to explain things clearly and help people understand something that was previously obscure or uh, mysterious and teaching this discipline that is that has been that was regarded as this secret black art for centuries just struck me as really appealing uh, and I discovered early on that I really like doing this uh, it's, it's an awful lot of work uh, but but it's also really satisfying besides naming a typeface what's the hardest part no, um, you know, for a minute, I was, I was trying to think of of some some letter. It's you know, like drawing in the lowercase s or the figure eight or I don't know something. But honestly, every one of those letters is hard in some way. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I mean, I mean the, the space between words is actually a glyph that we draw. And that is actually poses its own particular challenge. Wait, what do you mean? When you hit the space bar, yeah. what comes up is a, well, it's not, a, there's no drawing there, but right. it's a, uh, it, it's a piece of, uh, of the font that you're working in. And it has a dimension that the designer has specified. So it's not automatic or universal or anything like that. So when it comes to making the word space, there's obviously there's no drawing to make. You just have to pick how much space there is there needs to needs to come up when you hit the space bar, and that's that actually has a challenge of its own, is figuring out how much space will be enough to uh, clarify that one word has ended and the next one has begun or is about to begin, and also an amount of space that will work between two words in lowercase or a word in lowercase, an initial cap or an all cap setting, there's a lot of negotiation to work out there. Uh, and you know, this will depend on the width of, of the design and its weight and the, the size that you have in mind, whether you're thinking of something for display uses, for headlines, something for text. All of this has to be answered with this one number that you pick <laughs> for how big that word space is. It's so interesting to me that when I look at it from the outside, it seems almost like an engineering feat, but you talk about it as negotiation all the time, like you're some sort of like lettering liaison. <laughs> That's a very interesting way to approach it. It is, um, because every decision that you make uh, in designing a typeface, whether it's weight of of a stem and out of the lowercase h to the shape of the arch that comes off of that to the size of the serif at the baseline, um, each one of these decisions will exert some influence on all of the other decisions that you make. It's just this long, long chain of cause and effect, which becomes its own cause, creating its own effect, and so on and so on. So, so working with that does feel like, yeah, like a, a kind of, you're trying to negotiate some kind of peace between all of these different forces, whether it's what your eye needs, what the technology is best at doing or not so good at doing what own sort of cultural traditions will expect um and that's before you get to any of the odd mechanical there's sort of optical things that go on in our eyes that we need to accommodate when you're launching a product now which variations do you think about first do you think about what the web package will be do you, are you offering a web package is it often built around using it on computers or in print or is there one of those that takes priority over the others oh i try to think of all this simultaneously in terms of the, the range of weights i like to start in part of the range that people will be using the most you know sort of the regular weight or sort of the book weight or some somewhere around there but before too much time passes i like to see uh how light this can go and how heavy this can go before the design breaks in some way uh, to see you know what kind of range this design has because it, it'll be different each time um, just like you know, every singer has a particular range of notes that they can sing every typeface has its particular range of weights that it can that it can work in and if it goes beyond that then it won't sound very good it won't look very good or it'll just it won't it'll stop looking like itself so I, I try to find the the limits of that range uh, early on and for the environment, um, I like to think of print and, and web simultaneously. Uh, w one thing that, that the, this, uh, this new release will have, uh, something that I want to do for some time, 
was effectively an optical size variation. Many typefaces have different versions that are tuned for specific sizes that have different proportions and spacing for headlines and banner sizes and text sizes and really tiny sizes. Uh, what I did with uh, with Mallory, and I'll be doing this with, with other typefaces in the future, is I made this this variation called the Micro Focus series. And it begins as a, a version of the design meant to work at really, really small sizes in print. It goes down to, I think, about three and a half, four point Ooh. in print. <laughs> Jeez. And type designers have been dealing with this problem of size for centuries. Uh, you know, you've got you know, a whole bookcase of specimen books behind you that are hundreds of years of designers looking at the issue of how to make type look as good as it possibly can at every size that it's available at. And the things that you need to do to make something look good at a really, really small size are pretty well established. You need to spread the spacing out a bit, probably need to enlarge the X height, uh, and any details that are in there need to be simplified and strengthened, whether they're uh, in a ball terminals or serifs or whatever. And if you do these things, you know, you'll be able to set this at much, much smaller sizes. How much you do, it depends on the design and how small you're going and so on. So there's no exact rule about it, but the, the trend is pretty consistent. After spending a lot of time at, um, you know, over the years looking at uh, type on screen and type that is, that was made with the screen as its first environment, things like uh, I was part of the development for Verdana. Um, and the, I noticed that the things that you need to do to a typeface to give it the best chance to work on screen are spreading out the spacing, enlarging the X height, simplifying the details. They're actually, formally speaking, they're exactly the same as you would do for a text face at a very small size. So Mallory has this micro focus uh, version that has this dual purpose mm -hmm. uh, from the start of being sort of micro size in print and a text size on screen. So instead of separating these out and creating a version for the web that could only do text on the web and would be sort of like a fish out of water in, you know, if you tried to use it anywhere else, I wanted to make a version that could do both of these simultaneously so that the, uh, so that all of these, every part of the family would have some job to do no matter where it was or what you're doing. Right. It sounds really parallel to what the most recent example would be Apple in San Francisco uh, with their display size and their text size, right? I was going to get super lame and ask you how you feel about that. Since I'm actually that's the question curious everyone asks. Too. San Francisco has been a big topic in our industry just as a usability thing, but mm -hmm. there's also so many features baked in like that are just so nice for places like Sketch where you don't have very good typographic tools at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, clearly a lot, of, a lot of work and care went into that design. Uh, I watched the, uh, you know, the, the presentation where, <laughs> yeah. uh, where Cavadonia was explaining mm -hmm. this whole thing. I think he does a great job explaining you know, why type needs to behave differently at different sizes. I'm not sure why that family got so complicated, though. Um, it's pretty large. Yeah. And the uh, tracking has very different settings. Yes. Uh, but So, the, yeah, between this 
the San Francisco and the San Francisco Compact, and they both have a text and display version. I, I think it actually could have worked nicely if the display from one of these families was paired with the text variation from the other family and just made into one sort of more... Super family? <laughs> uh, well, I was thinking less of a super family, more sort of simplified. Okay. Um, so the, the choices for the user wouldn't be quite so, uh, quite so daunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you have to read a guide to be able to use it like correctly or the way they want you to. Sure. And ideally, uh, a typeface should explain itself you know, in, in how it can, how it can best be used. Uh, and that's, you know, they could be simple as, as simple as just what you, the name that you put to it. Um, you know, that's sort of your first, uh, and most frequent connection to this typeface is the name that you attach to it. So and I found that when families get really, really large, users become less and less sure of how to use them. Because if there are four different things that you could conceivably set your body text in, you're going to wonder which one of these you should actually be using and why is it this one and not the other three or whatever. And that's part of the designer's job is to just make this more, the the job for the user more, just easier to get through easier yeah help them do their jobs better yeah um we have a few minutes left i would love to hear like um maybe practical tips of of people that you look up to in the field or outside the field that other people should follow and learn from i think matthew carter uh certainly i think is one of the best designers in this business and has been for for quite a long time i had the the great fortune of being able to work with him uh, on, on a number of projects. So I got to learn from him, not only from what he told me, but being able to just study up close what he had drawn and, and see how he had solved the problems of proportion and spacing, you know, all these things that go on behind the scenes. You know, I, I learned a lot from, um, from him. I think there's some, some figures in the, in the past that I look up to, admire. Certainly Bill Dwiggins, I was a, an American designer working from uh, the 20s up to think about the 50s. He worked for Linotype, and he was working under pretty much the most constrained environment that any designer has ever worked in. Uh, I mean, there are other people working for, you know, working under the same constraints um, at, at the same time. But just because of how the typesetting uh, machinery worked at that time, th- there were just these unmovable obstacles um, in his way and he was absolutely brilliant at turning these things into assets in some way turning these things that he could not get rid of into things that you would never want to get rid of so you know if you look at at caledonia and electra you would never know that these things were drawn inside a straitjacket essentially Hmm. but they were but they still look fantastic right and that is I think a, a really great, those are great examples of uh, sort of artistry and engineering kind of helping one another. Uh, and then we're sitting in front of a bookshelf with thousands of books. I, Do you uh, have a favorite? Uh, yeah, I think there were like 1,200 here. So. Ooh. Uh, sorry, a, f- a favorite one? Uh-huh. Oh. Desert Island, you only get one type book. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, no that's, that's actually easy. The uh, 1882 specimen from the uh, Bruce... Uh, foundry here in New York, and apart from being this grand uh, uh, just piece of 
design and, and, and printing, the designs in here represent what I think was some of the best work that was coming out of, out of America throughout the 19th century, um, both in terms of its originality and its sensitivity, but also the, the technical finish that was put into these designs was uh, matched by a few, but not really surpassed by anybody. Awesome. Okay. Uh, I guess we'll put a link to this in the show notes. I would love to look through it too. Yeah, we're out of, we're time. Out of time. So <laughs> thank you for taking the time. I right. appreciate it. Thanks for coming by. Uh, great. Is there anything you want to plug before you go? Um, visit uh, frerejones.com to see Mallory and, and all the new things that are coming after it. Which should be live right now. Yes. <laughs> cool. out. Sweet. That's right. it. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. That's episode 85. Huge thanks to Tobias for taking the time out of his busy, busy schedule of trying to get a font out the door and start a new company to, to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM on Twitter or join our Slack team. That's at spec.fm slash slack. Or if you just want some more stuff to listen to, go to spec.fm. We have five podcasts on the network. And all we're about- working on more. And more crazy. coming soon. Really exciting news coming in hopefully the next few months. But if you want to level up right now, just go to spec.fm and start listening to some of our other shows. Before we go, huge thanks to our two sponsors that made this episode possible. Once again, thanks so much to Wayno. They are a full-service digital agency right now with offices in San Francisco and New York, and they want us to let you know that they are hiring. So go to wayno.co, that's U-E-N-O dot C-O. Hit the careers link in the header and tell them we sent you. They're an amazing agency doing amazing work. So if you are looking for your next job, be sure to check out Wayno. The last person they hired came from us. There you go. Our second sponsor, as always, Dropbox. Dropbox lets you work the way you want. Really, they manage all the storage and all the the syncing so that you can work with any file on any device from wherever you are with anyone you choose so you can just keep building new, awesome, interesting things. And you can get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox for sponsoring the show. We'll see you on Monday with Susan Lynn.